Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Throughout its history, Cape Hatteras National Seashore, which was designated the country's first national seashore back in 1937, and even before then, this sandy collection of barrier islands has been attractive to wildlife. A variety of sea turtle species come ashore to lay their nests, and a variety of shorebirds settle there too to lay their nests and to rest. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. But the thing with wildlife nesting on the beaches of Cape Hatteras is that one great season can be followed by a poor one. Influencing the outcome can be human disturbances, storms, and predation. So how was 2023 for piping plovers, a threatened species at Cape Hatteras? And what about the sea turtles that come ashore there, too? To get the answers to those questions, we've invited Megan Johnson, the Seasource Chief of Resource Management Science, to join us. We'll be back in a minute with Megan. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Welcome to the Traveler, Megan. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, People who love national parks usually love the national wildlife that go with them. Um, the birds, the turtles, the animals, the charismatic megafauna. Now, Cape Hatteras' role as a breeding ground for plovers is well documented in recent history. Its wide, sparkling beaches are popular with visitors of all kinds, humans, birds, and reptiles. For those unfamiliar with piping plovers, they are small birds that have been listed as a threatened species since January of 1986. There are birds that skitter nervously, it appears, back and forth across the beach looking for a morsel to eat. Only about six and a half inches from beak to tail tip and tipping the scales at only a couple of ounces, piping plovers are bland in plumage with whites, grays, and buffs, contrasted only by a black band of feathers circling their necks. Now, Megan, I was looking at your recent uh, resource management field summary and was kind of taken back by the low number of plover nests. Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, plover nesting at Cape Hatteras has never really been that tremendous. I think in 2006, there were six nesting pairs, and in 2010, a dozen pairs. Yeah, that sounds about right. I think that the highest number of nesting pairs we've had at the seashore is 15 uh, since we've been monitoring since the early 1990s. Uh, and this year, in, in 2023, we actually had five nesting pairs of piping plover. 
is it always been on the low side? I mean, you, you hear about some places where, you know, there, there might not just be dozens, but maybe hundreds of pairs. That's right. Yeah. And we are on the southern end uh, of their range. So we, we've we never really had high nesting numbers uh, okay. here at the seashore. Yeah, I was wondering about that because I saw some reports earlier um, this week about, I don't know if it was Assateague or, or maybe even Cape Cod, and they had some pretty good numbers this year. That's great. Now you had five nesting pairs this year. Is that a record low? No. Um, I think in the early 2000s, we've had as low as two two pairs uh, of piping plover nesting. Uh, so not, not a record low this year. And five is really about average, I think, here for the seashore. Huh. It, it, can you uh, point to any specific reason why the why the numbers might fluctuate from season to season? You know, just looking at the numbers, it's it's so hard to tell. There's so many external forces uh, happening in terms of where they're nesting. Uh, if if they're not nesting here, are they nesting in other areas? Uh, we are working with Virginia Tech to try to answer some of those questions uh, through their current monitoring and hopefully in a, a future project, just trying to better understand uh, what our management efforts here are contributing to the, the larger Atlantic population of piping plovers. Now, you had five nesting pairs. Um, any eggs, any, any fledglings? We did not have any fledglings this year. Uh, you know, we, we still have current threats of uh, predation. Coyote predation has actually been a, a larger threat to our nesting uh, shorebirds here over the last couple of years with an increase uh, in their population, uh, both here and at Cape Lookout National Seashore. Uh, we're actually uh, doing a coyote population study with uh, NC State this year just to try to understand how many we actually have, mm-hmm. um, just to better inform our, our predator management efforts here. Yeah. But between that and overwash and more frequent storms, we had some nest inundation uh, from from storms that we lost the eggs. Um, so, yeah, we did not have any fledglings this year. You, you know, obviously at, at Cape Hatteras, they can just follow the highway down from the mainland, um, the coyotes can, um, to get to the seashore. At, at Cape Lookout, it's more of a challenge. I mean, do they, do they swim across? They're swimming. Yeah. Yeah. We're actually um, putting some collars on some of the coyotes at Cape Lookout uh, just to understand how they're moving between the islands and what that looks like. So hopefully we'll have some better information about um, their population, how they're moving, how long they're staying on those islands before they move. And, and um, yeah. Wow. That's that's unusual. I mean, you know, I'm out in Utah and we're pretty familiar with coyotes and whatnot, but uh I guess they're very, um, they can travel. Yes. Yes, they can. They're very smart. Yeah. yeah. Now, you also have some other um, types of predation there. Um, I know once upon a time, and maybe it's still the case, uh, feral cats, are, are they still an issue at Cape Hatteras? Feral cats, uh, mink, raccoon, possum, yeah. And they all like uh, plover eggs? They all like shorebird eggs. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to discern between what predators we have. Um, you know, and, and, and I would say that we probably have more of an issue at the chick stage once they become chicks than we sure. do at the egg stage. We do put predator exclosures around the nest. Yeah. So usually if we do have loss, that's typically due to uh, inundation from storms uh, where we lose the eggs. But we do, we do lose the chicks more so to predation. Yeah, yeah. Um, now out here um, in the West, we've got magpies, and um, magpies love eggs, and they're not 
shy about um, taking advantage of a, an open nest and, and eating the eggs. Do, do you have that with um, bird species? No, um, that hasn't been an issue. Ghost crabs have been more of an issue. Hmm. Um, that's been something we've been um, thinking about and, and talking about uh, amongst the piping plover community about removing ghost crabs uh, from the area where we have nests, uh, just because they do tend to, um, they will eat the eggs and, and the chicks. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I noticed in this year's um, field report that Cape Point recorded no nests. Um, wasn't the point one of the more frequented sites for nesting plovers in years past? So on our beach access table, I think that's what you're referring to. So that that is talking about the, the east-facing beaches of Cape Point, but on the south-facing beaches in the Cape Point area, that's where we primarily have our, our piping plover nests. And we had two, two three nests there this year and uh, the South Beach area of Cape Point. Okay, okay. Now, back in 2016, in response to the ongoing controversy at the time over beach closures related to ATV traffic and, and surf casters and pickup trucks and whatnot and the possible damages to, to nests and whatnot, um, the National Park Service asked the American Ornithological Society to assemble a, a panel and produce an independent report uh, assessing the appropriateness of the current beach management plan at the time. Um, that study came out in 2020, I believe, and it said that the piping plover population on Cape Hatteras National Seashore experienced a large decline paralleled by a similar decline in Cape Lookout National Seashore from the mid-1990s through the early 2000s that was specific to these areas rather than part of any broader regional decline. Um, both populations subsequently recovered to previous levels. Population recovery coincided with implementation of new management in the form of protective buffers around plover nests and chicks and removal of mammalian predators, as well as a decline in the number of visitors to the seashore and creation of new habitat due to the impacts of Hurricane Isabel. Since that report, has there been a general decline in plovers either nesting or migrating through Cape Hatteras? Or what you were referring to earlier, it really kind of seesaws up and down over the years. Yeah, it does. And uh, I think the more more data we have, it's so interesting to see how it does go up and down. Obviously, we don't have very high numbers. So when I say going up and down, we may have 15 nesting pairs being the highest down to 10 to 5 to 8. Um, it, it just does seem to go up and down. And, and whether that's, you know, just depending on if that's the population and some coming, some going, storms, uh, habitat availability. I think all of those factors are probably at play. So it's a really complicated story to be able to explain why we may have two nesting pairs this year and five nesting pairs the next year. But either way, we're still on that low, low, you know, the southern end of that range. So we, we just don't have that many to begin with. This is Kurt Repencheck at the National Parks Traveler. We're talking today with Megan Johnson, the Chief of Resource Management and Science at Cape Hatteras National Seashore. We're talking about birds and sea turtles, and we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make the National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation at nationalparkstraveler.org. Adventure awaits. Explore the beauty of our national parks with Explorer Maps. Whether you're captivated by the breathtaking landscapes of Yellowstone or the wild shores of Acadia, Explorer Maps has a perfect map to connect you to your favorite place. 
Visit explorermaps.com to find your next adventure. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at EvergladesFoundation.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. You know, Megan, um Back in the last century when I was going to college, I, I had this dream of being a wildlife biologist. And I really wanted to follow I wanted to follow that dream, but but then I ran into chemistry and chemistry said you're not gonna be a wildlife biologist. <laughs> was it organic chemistry? Because that I one gets all of us. I didn't get that far. <laughs> I didn't get that far. I was I was acing biology. It was really easy. I could see it, but you know, trying to understand molecules and atoms and electrons and protons that you can't see was kind of a stumbling block for me. Um, so I turned to journalism, which which allows me to be anything I want to be on any given day because I get to talk with people like you and, and understand, try and um, understand what you're doing and experience it. And, you know, this story about the, the, the plovers and American oyster catchers and the other, you know, shorebirds and colonial waterbirds you have there at Cape Hatteras, as well as the sea turtles. I mean, it's just fascinating. Um, several years ago, I, I forget exactly what the year was, um, researchers had discovered that the plovers were using South Point as a migration stopover. And I think they, they found, uh, I want to say a couple hundred plovers stopped there on our migration route. Is that, is that still the case? Yeah, we had, I think, I think what you're talking about, we had over 600 uh, wow. migrating piping plover, and that was before Hurricane Dorian. So we did see a decline after we lost a lot of habitat down at South Point from Hurricane Dorian, and that was in 2019. Uh, we have seen those numbers start to increase. I think this year we had about 100 uh, migrating piping plover was was probably around the highest count. Um, but as that habitat starts to grow again, I think we'll see, hopefully continue to see uh, that being an important stopover for those piping plover, as well as red knots as well. Yeah. Does the seashore see many red knots? Yeah. We actually did an uh, aerial survey, I think, in May of this year, and I think we had over 1,300 uh, wow. red knots throughout the seashore. Yeah. Wow. Now, the, the red knot population has been struggling along the East Coast, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Yeah. So hopefully we're, uh, I hope that the habitat that we have here is contributing uh, to that, you know, resting and foraging that they're using. We don't have any um, nesting roseates, but that is um, uh, important. We're an important place for them for foraging and for resting as well during their, their migration. Yeah. Wasn't their population status greatly dependent on horseshoe crabs? It is. Yes. Yep. And... 
How's your horseshoe crab population? <laughs> uh, we actually, I'm sure we have, we don't have as much as up north. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> I know that's a really important thing uh, further north of us, but um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's good to hear um, that the, the migrating uh, plovers are still using South Point and that the, the red knots are attracted to it as well. What about the American oyster catchers? How are they doing there? Those are just the comical birds with their bright, carrot orange beaks and they're they're doing pretty good we've actually had a, a increase in the number of nesting pairs of american oyster catchers uh definitely over the last five years i think we had over 30 nesting pairs uh this summer um so we've we've seen an increase at least over the last five years of them nesting here so is it apples and oranges trying to understand why you have an increase in one species but not an increase in the other species uh, yes to some degree. <laughs> it's a very complicated story to tell, um, you know, whether the habitat's suitable for one species and maybe not for another, uh, whether that's due to foraging or just the overall population is doing well. Uh, it is. It's a very complicated story. Yeah. Well, that gives you something to do every day when you come to work, right? That's exactly right. It's never a dull moment. No, it doesn't sound <laughs> like it. And, you know, when you talk about natural phenomenon i mean you know we keep hearing about sea level rise and, and more potent hurricanes and storms in general and a lot of those storms as we saw at, at south point some years ago enhance the habitat just as easily as they might wipe out the habitat yes um and I, that report that you talked about uh also talks a little bit about that and knowing that we should be seeing more frequent storms with climate change um, and and that in turn sometimes creates new habitat uh, right. for for nesting shorebirds. So that's that that part of the cycle is also really important for creating habitat as well. Now, seemingly more positive this year than the the plover situation are, are your sea turtle numbers. Um, I believe you had uh, I forget exactly how many hundreds of of sea turtles come ashore to the nest. Uh, three three to four hundred was it. Yes, we had 379 sea turtles. Actually, we had the exact same number last year as well. So we're tied last year, uh, and that was the second highest number uh, for the seashore. I think um, uh, we had uh, the highest highest summer that we had was over 400 nests in 2019. So we've seen a really large increase in the number of nesting sea turtles. I think prior to that, we would see maybe 80 to 100 nests, and now we're getting almost 400 nests. So very exciting, but it's also uh, a lot of work for our staff to, to monitor and track and, and keep track of all of the nests that we're getting here, but it has been very exciting. Yeah. What, what do you attribute the increase to? Uh, hopefully it's an increase in the, the regional population. Uh, most of our nesting here is loggerhead sea turtles, but we've also right. seen an increase in the number of, of green sea turtles uh, in Kemp's Ridley that we've been having each year. Uh, we've had leatherback nesting, at least one, uh, the last couple of years. So that's been exciting. That's always an uh, exciting thing, especially if we catch them coming up to nest uh, in the early morning hours, which our staff did this year. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, your friends at Outer Banks Forever, the um, friends group associated with Cape Hatteras and, and the other park units there, they put out a report that um, more than 25,000 sea turtle hatchlings made it to the water. Yeah. 
Yeah. So every nest uh, that we have here, we've actually been, we will excavate the nest after it's hatched out to see how many, how productive that nest was and determine how many made it to the water. So yeah, that's what those numbers are based on. Yeah. Now at the same time, um, I believe your staff counted more than 39,000 eggshells, so to speak. Yeah. So is, is that is that a normal ratio if you had 39,000 um, eggs laid that 25,000 made it to the ocean? You're making Tough me question. do some quick, quick math, aren't you? Um, <laughs> Take your time. Take your time. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, you know, we typically have 100 to 120 nests per, per uh, 20 eggs per nest. So that, that seems about right if we're having about 70 to 80 percent of those hatching out and, and successfully making that to the ocean. That's a pretty good success rate. Some have been, uh, we, we did lose some nests to erosion, overwash and inundation from some storms that we had over the summer, um, some tropical storms and hurricanes that were offshore that did impact uh, some of those nests and also some predation from coyotes as well. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you what the the main cause of those um, 14,000 hatchlings that didn't make it to the, the ocean were, um, main cause was predation or do eggs not hatch sometimes? Sometimes they just don't hatch or they don't develop. Uh, and we keep track of that as well, just to understand if, um, you know, they didn't hatch out. Sometimes we will excavate a nest and there will be some hatchlings at the bottom of the nest that we end up uh, releasing. But yes, yeah, sometimes they just don't develop. Yeah. yeah. Now, <clears throat> there have been studies in recent years that um, the sex of the hatchlings can depend greatly on the sand temperature that the eggs are um, experiencing as they, they go through incubation. Do you guys sex the hatchlings? Can you tell whether there's been an increase in females or males? We can't. Uh, we do have temperature loggers that we have in the nests um, so that we can track what the temperature is. Just because we are, are further north, I think uh, when we have, we in theory, have cooler sand, we, we are likely producing more males than we are females here uh, mm -hmm. in North Carolina. But uh, we, we do track that temperature and we will continue to do that. And I know other um, parts of North Carolina and throughout the southeast are doing that as well, just tracking the temperature of, of the nests and where they're being laid. And so have you seen any, any great increase in temperature in, in recent years or is it held pretty steady? I think held pretty steady, at least over the last five years. Um, and, and a lot of that, that temperature data we're actually using to determine when that nest may hatch. We've got it down to like a three to five day window that helps us better understand when that nest is going to hatch. Um, that helps us predict uh, prior to hatching, we'll install uh, filter fencing. So a quarter basically down to the high tide line to uh, kind of filter out any sort of light sources so that the hatchlings can make it down to, uh, down to the water. So that's helped with us being able to provide monitors and other things, uh, especially for some of the areas outside of the seashore uh, where they have volunteers that are monitoring the nest and they can't be there for a week or two weeks at a time. That, that temperature data has really helped narrow uh, down when that, that window is when we think the nest might hatch. Well, I'm staring at retirement, so maybe I'll come out and spend a couple of weeks watching your nest. There you go. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> you know, we, we see these pictures from, you know, Cape Hatteras and, and some other parks um, where the hatchlings, it's broad daylight and hatchlings are heading down to the coast, down to the water. What time of day do the hatchlings usually go? I mean, is it always at 
daytime or you mentioned the, the filters to block the light because uh, the light can really confuse the turtle. So do most of the hatchlings head down at nighttime? Yeah, usually at night or, or sometimes up into the early morning uh, before the sunrise. Yeah, so usually that, that's the window of, of when they'd be hatching out. Yeah. Any idea why? Um, I think, well, following the moonlight, that's part of how they, they know where to go. Uh, and that's but, I mean, what they're as far looking as, for. As far as they know when to hatch. Oh, gosh. I don't, yeah. I don't, <laughs> your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> no, I think yours is better. You're the biologist. <laughs> Now, you mentioned that, or, or I saw that um, there were three Kemp's Ridley turtles nesting on the seashore this summer. That's that's pretty unusual, isn't it? Highly unusual? We've been having them, at least uh, over the last five years since I've been here, we've been having them consistently nesting here, which is exciting to see. And they are usually day nesters also, so they'll come right. up and lay their nest during the day. So we often get phone calls from visitors letting us know that they're coming up to nest, and then we'll go and protect the nest after we find it so yeah that's been really exciting to have them here yeah. is that uh, a result of climate change because usually as i understand it the kemp's ridleys are, are largely in the gulf of mexico could be uh i mean i hopefully it's also an increase uh, in their population uh i know pottery island uh does a lot of work with the kemp's ridleys right. there and has a lot of nesting happening there in the gulf yeah 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 Pretty exciting times. And then you mentioned uh, there was one leatherback this year. Um, pretty unusual. Yes. Yes, it was. This is Kurt Repencheck with National Parks Traveler. We're talking today with Megan Johnson at Cape Hatteras National Seashore about piping plovers and sea turtles and red knots and other wildlife. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Interior Federal Credit Union is pleased to introduce our upcoming seven-month certificate special set to launch on November 1st, 2023. This limited-time offer features a competitive 5.75% annual percentage yield. It's a great way to make your savings work harder for you. Please note that this special rate is available for new funds only. If you've been exploring options to grow your savings, remember to mark November 1st on your calendar. We're here to help you achieve your financial goals. Apply for membership at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. So Megan, um, some years ago, um, in the early 2000s, there was a lot of controversy over over surf casters and, and nesting plovers and and sea turtles and beach driving. Um, it, it seems like um, there's been a happy medium reached. I mean, we don't we don't hear about um, any real great problems um, between those different groups. I think so. Um, yeah, I think 
you know, we've we've tried really hard to protect the resources while still providing as much access as we can as possible. Um, you know, we're still uh, we're working with UNCW right now on a on a, a buffer study to try to understand. You know, part of our our ORV management plan is to have buffers that are of the smallest size and of the shortest duration. Um, and so we continue to, you know, work with universities like UNCW to make sure that our buffers are of the right size and that if we can provide an access corridor via, you know, for ORVs or for pedestrians that we're able to do that without impacting the resources. And um, so I think we're, we've, we've tried really hard to, to bridge that gap and, and bring, you know, provide that access while still protecting our, you know, our nesting shorebirds and our sea turtles and, um, involving the user groups as part of that and, and, and talking about those studies, letting them know what we're doing uh, and just involving the community. And I hope that's um, been really helpful to kind of bridge that gap between those groups. Yeah, yeah. I believe um, the Seashore has also opened some additional beach ramps. Is that correct in, in recent years? As part of the ORV management plan, yeah, right. yes. Yeah. So, Looking at the the seashore and and where the the nesting birds are, the nesting turtles, is it the range of the seventy miles or so of the uh, the national seashore, or does the wildlife like one particular area that makes it easier for you guys to to manage where your um, beach traffic goes? Really great question. Um, you know, there are areas that we know the birds will come back to time and again, like South Point and the Cape Point area and South Beach. Um, and even our American oyster catchers are pretty predictable about where where they'll return back to. Um, we actually install pre-nesting areas at the beginning mm-hmm. of the season in March and April, knowing that if we've had nesting occurring there in, in two of the last five years, that will, if the habitat uh, is suitable, that we would protect that area. And typically they will return uh, mm-hmm. to those same areas each year to nest. So there is some predictability, I guess, to that of where they're going to be nesting, but there's also, because it's such a dynamic area and our seashore is constantly changing and some areas are experiencing more erosion than others or more habitat creates uh, in some areas. So we do have some new areas where we get nesting uh, one year and not the other. And so there is some variability there, but there are some consistent areas that we know that we'll have nesting each year. And so that makes it easier to provide some separation between the wildlife and the human life? It does in some degree. Uh, It depends. Yeah. Now, you you mentioned erosion and, of course, um, you know, sea level rise is um, a big issue. And, of course, um, houses falling into the Atlantic Ocean up at Rodanthe is an issue. Is what's going on with the storms and and the ocean's behavior and a barrier island's a barrier island, it's going to move around. How is that affecting wildlife habitat. And you might have already just answered it by saying, you know, some areas are not as attractive one year, but you might have a new area open up. Yeah. I, you know, and it, uh, yep. I think that's exactly right. It just fluctuates so much. You know, we start to see erosion in one area and then we might see some grow. Uh, Cape Point area is a good example of that. Uh, we've had a lot of erosion on the South facing beaches, like uh, coming up to Cape Point. Uh, I think we've lost about a quarter mile of that shoreline in the last five years. So that's quarter pretty mile. significant. Yeah. We start to plot where we had our existing uh, previous nests for American oyster catchers. A lot of them are plotted into the water now. It's in the ocean. And so while 
maybe the south-facing beach starts to erode, the east-facing beach is now growing. And so the beach is getting wider to the east, but it's shrinking, uh, you know, from the south. And so the island's just changing in different ways. So it's just, um, it keeps it exciting to see where the birds are going to go, where the people want to be. Sometimes that is conflicting with where the best fishing is and where the birds want to be at the same time. And um, yeah, we try to work through that. Yeah, real interesting. And then there's the um, the totally unexpected things that you can't expect, <laughs> so to speak, or, or easily deal with. And, and what I'm referring to is um, you might have some ordinance from World War II show up. Um, you might have some, um, there was an old site, and I forget if it was some World War II or what, where you had some oil or some sort of petroleum um, coming up to the surface. Yes, Buxton Beach access. Buxton yes, Beach. it was an old. Um, previously, the uh, the Navy and the Coast Guard both occupied that site at the seashore, uh, and uh, we recently had some uh, petroleum that was exposed, uh, petroleum contaminated sediments that were exposed at that site. Yeah, how were they exposed? Was that a, an instance where um, the ocean kept eroding away um, the beach line, and it got back to the point where this um, operation once stood? That's exactly right. Yeah. Some old foundations from buildings that we didn't know were current, were even there, we thought had been removed, uh, were exposed uh, along with some, um, what we think is a, a contaminated peat layer. Uh, the peat kind of acts as a sponge and, and, and soaked up some of the petroleum uh, from previous spills or whatever, you know, had occurred there many years ago. Has that site been cleaned up or, or how's it being dealt with? We're, we're currently working with the Coast Guard uh, as well as the um, Army Corps. Uh, they, through their FUDS program, it's actually a current uh, formerly used defense site. And they are actually, uh, they were doing groundwater monitoring from previous contamination where they had remediated the soil. Uh, and we're actually thinking that that, that site was, was almost done before this happened and the erosion occurred where we found some additional. So they are, uh, we're working closely with them. Uh, on the cleanup of that site. And I guess uh, the wildlife would naturally stay away from that site. That is it, Yes. And that's typically not um, an area where we have uh, shorebird nesting occurring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or sea turtles. Or Yeah. Occasionally sea turtles uh, just north or south of there, but not current, not, not within that, that area. And as far as uh, predation, you mentioned earlier, the, the studies trying to better understand the, the coyote population, how many, where they're going, what their behaviors are like. Um, ghost crabs are, are normal native wildlife, I believe. And so you, you don't worry too much about those, but then you do have the, the feral cats. And um, I don't know, you mentioned raccoons as well. Are they um, natives? They, they may be native, but um, they're definitely predators to the, uh, to the shorebirds. As far as the feral cats, I know that was a, a concern in years past. Has um, that been eliminated, or do you still deal with that issue? Um, they do. No, we still have uh, issues with feral cats. I think the coyotes have been, uh, the focus has been shifted more towards the coyotes because they've been um, predating more so than anything else we have here at the seashore. Um, so that's really been our focus. Do you have any guesstimate of the, the coyote population? I don't. I don't. I'm really curious to see what this population study is going to tell us, uh, whether there's five, a dozen, 
or more. I don't, I don't know. It's really hard to tell. And because the seashore is so long and over 70 miles, it's hard to, to know, uh, you know, how many we have and if it's, you know, just pockets, uh, between body Island and Hatteras, uh, this year was actually the first year that, uh, we, uh, were aware of that there was a coyote, um, on Ocracoke. We, we saw prints down at South Point and then, uh, a local actually had, on a, on a game camera had gotten a picture of, of a coyote. So unfortunately I think they've made their way to Ocracoke. So we're trying to, um, uh, hopefully get ahead of that. Yeah. Yeah. Quite a challenge, but overall it sounds like your wildlife is doing pretty well there. No, is that an over, yes, overstatement? I think so. Yeah. I, you know, we still, we're still dealing with challenges, uh, erosion, overwash, um, predation, uh, the, the typical management challenges uh, along with that. But over, overall, I think that we're doing pretty well and uh, encouraged to see the number of nesting sea turtles increasing, the number of oyster catchers increasing. Hopefully the piping plover uh, will start to increase as well. Um, and um, yeah, so pretty encouraged by those numbers. Yeah, no, it sounds, sounds really great uh, what's going on there. I know your, your human population has been increasing too, hasn't it? I mean, I think you've had some record years of visitation. Record visitation, yes, the last few years, especially after COVID. So, um, yes, it's been uh, a challenging, challenging time to, to balance the two, but I think we've been doing a pretty good job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, obviously, um, something must be working if, if you're managing to see um, strong wildlife numbers and uh, and happy visitors. Yeah, that's and that's great. <laughs> well, Megan, thanks so much for uh, joining us today, and um, we'll catch up down the road. When when do you think you might have that coyote uh, data? It's a two year study, so probably two years. We'll, we'll we'll have to check in in, in two years, and we'll we'll let you know how that goes. Okay, that'd be interesting for sure. That's Megan Johnson, the Chief of Resource Management and Science at Cape Hatteras National Seashore, um, talking about piping plovers and other shorebirds and sea turtles at Cape Hatteras. Thanks again, Megan. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. That's our show for this week. We hope you found it interesting. Whether coyotes are a serious problem at Cape Hatteras National Seashore is the focus of the study that Megan mentioned. It's a two-year study that just started this year so it will be a while before the outcome is known. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.